You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning, everybody. I think we're going to go ahead and get started. We're, the, we're, we're now here, uh, and we're looking at Exodus chapter 4. I hope that you read ahead this week. Uh, you'll always find it helpful to do that. And next week, we're only going to do chapter 5. So you can read ahead there as well, and even just a very specific section of chapter 5. Um, and then this is a 12-week teaching on Exodus, so obviously we're going to pick up the pace dramatically uh, as, we, uh, as we move on. And because we are biting off such big chunks, I won't be doing scripture readings uh, necessarily uh, in, in the classes, but you, you would find it very helpful to have your Bibles open because I'm going to say things uh, that, you're gonna, that won't make any sense whatsoever unless you're looking along with me. But before we get into Exodus 4, let us pray. Oh God, we do come to you this morning uh, wanting to know you, uh, wanting to experience you. And Lord, uh, help us in our inadequacy, in our ignorance, in our ineffectiveness, and use us as you will. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, Moses has his first encounter while tending his father-in-law's flock uh, there in Midian, uh, and he sees this bush that is burning but not consumed, and so he turns aside and says, I will go and see this thing. But uh, God says, no, that's not how you approach me. Uh, and we talked about what it meant to be in the presence of God and the significance of that, which is often lost on us uh, in this day and age where uh, nothing is, is sacred. Uh, and uh, heretofore, uh, God has done a lot of talking, but he hasn't really done anything. I mean, the, the bush is pretty remarkable, uh, but, but he hasn't really done anything. He's promised to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, uh, and he's talked a lot of talk, but he's not done anything until we get here to chapter 4, where we start to get a, uh, a preview of what it is that God will be doing in and amongst his people and calling them out of Egypt. And so Moses uh, hears what God's plan is for his people and for Moses in particular. And then Moses answers in verse 1, but... But me, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. So Moses now brings up the, the big issue for him, which is, God, that sounds like an amazing plan. But it's not going to work if you're looking for me to follow through on any of this. If you're looking for me to be the main character, the main antagonist in bringing your people out of Egypt, this isn't going to to work. But remember last week we saw that God is not so much interested in making plans as he is in making men and women, as he is informing us more and more into his likeness, which means that we get to know God more and more. That's why we talk about a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, not uh, just a passing acquaintance or even a great depth of knowledge about God, but actually knowing God intimately. And that's what Moses is going to experience in his own life. And so God is saying to Moses, Moses, I have a plan for your life. 
He's saying the same thing to us. Do you believe that there is a divine destiny for you? Now, before you say, yeah, but Andrew, I'm, I'm, I'm over the hill and, and, and coasting on the way down. I, I'm too far gone. Moses is 80 when all this has taken place. He's 80. And this is the main moment, right? So, so Moses doesn't really hit his stride in life until he's after 80. And so none of us can really sit here and say, ah, well, I'm, I'm beyond use. Uh, that God's call on Moses is actually the same call on our lives. It may not be leading God's people out of bondage in Egypt into the promised land, uh, but surely it is uh, to lead people out of the bondage of sin into a relationship with Jesus Christ, which is an even greater miracle than even delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt. And so God's saying, no, Moses, I have a plan for you, and my plans will never be thwarted. Right? God doesn't sit up in heaven and say, oh, I didn't see that coming. I guess I'm going to have to, to readjust. Even in the Garden of Eden, remember when uh, this often comes up in our confirmation class with the children, they often ask you know, um, or assume that in light of the fall that somehow Jesus was God's plan B. That God's real plan was just for us to dwell in fellowship with him in the garden forever. And because of uh, Adam and Eve's rebellion, all of a sudden it made God have to enact some evasive maneuvers. Uh, But actually Jesus was the plan all along. Paul reminds us in Ephesians uh, about our salvation that was determined before what? The very foundations of the earth. Jesus was always God's plan A. So God's plans cannot be thwarted. And in spite of what Moses, he's got some good reasons as, as to why he's not the man for the job. But Moses is about to set out on a great work that has been given to him by God. And God shows Moses powerful signs. The rod that turns into a serpent, the hand that becomes leprous and is healed again, and water from the Nile that is turned to blood. And yet, in spite of these powerful signs, Moses still fears. Why does he fear? Moses knows his own inadequacy, his ignorance, and his ineffectiveness. These are the things that he articulates to God that God responds to here in the first half of chapter 4. But also, Moses knows the power of words. And this is a bit of a footnote. Throughout the Bible, we see God do some really remarkable things, and we'll certainly see that in the book of Exodus. But if you look at, if you have an an ESV Bible, uh, you'll notice at the top of uh, chapter 4, what is the heading for this chapter? Moses given powerful signs. Now, I like this because it appropriates biblical language. It's not just some editor. Sometimes you ought to ignore these things because, you know, it's not as if in real life Jesus would have said something like, and now the feeding of the 5,000. You know, it's, this is not, you know, this is not the introduction to the next scene in the movie. Uh, but this one's really good because he says, because the editor has put in Moses has given powerful signs. Signs are really powerful, but even in the ministry of Jesus, we see that signs are not enough. 
John, especially in his gospel, uses the word signs to describe Jesus' miracles. Why does he use the word signs? What is a sign? It points to something. So when you're coming in on Interstate 20 and you come into Birmingham and it says Birmingham uh, two miles, do you get out and take a picture and say we've arrived in Birmingham? Do you say let's just hang out around the sign? Isn't this one? No. You, you move on past the sign to the thing that it's pointing to. Birmingham is your destination. In the same way, these great miracles are not ends of themselves. They're signs that point to God's redemptive power and his plan for the people of Israel and ultimately reconciliation with God through the Lord Jesus Christ and eternal fellowship with him. The sign is not the destination, but the thing that points you in the right direction. Signs are not enough. The word of God given is so much more. Because that's what it's pointing to. It's not, Moses even understands, these are some pretty neat signs, but what am I to say? Because Moses understands the importance of the word, of the words being spoken. And so he's a little nervous about whether or not he is the right person. In the first instance, he says, I am inadequate. So if we look at verses 10 through 15. But Moses says to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who, made man's, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with you, your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak." But Moses says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Well, I think that we would all say that. But even behind that of his inadequacy of speaking, I don't think it's just Moses saying, I don't know what to say because God has promised to put his words in Moses mouth. So what might be driving Moses' feelings of inadequacy. Why might he feel inadequate as if I'm not the right guy for this job? Guilt, Guilt over what? Murder. Murder, right? Why is he in Midian? He ran away. He murdered an Egyptian and buried his body in the sand and two Israelites were fighting. And he said, don't fight. He was being very self-righteous in that moment, saying, you're brothers, you should be getting along. Uh, and the one turns to, the, to Moses and says, are you going to kill us too like you did that Egyptian? And so off into Midian, uh, Moses flies. And so Moses is feeling rather inadequate because he's reminding himself of his past failures. Now, later on, we'll read, Moses says, everybody who wants you dead is now dead themselves. So he gets that assurance later on in chapter, at the end of chapter four. Uh, but in the moment, Moses is realizing my resume has a big blot upon it. And it's this murder charge that I have against me. And therefore, that renders me inadequate. 
And this is one of the tools that the devil uses to paralyze us from serving God. Something in your own past, something that you even might struggle with right now that would say, but God, you don't understand how inadequate I am to do what you're calling me to do. Do you really know who I am and what I've done? And certainly Satan is always there to plant those ideas in your mind, to remind you of your own inadequacy and to bring up that thing which you've tried as hard as you possibly can uh, to uh, stamp down in your mind. But in those quiet moments right before you're about to go to bed or whenever it is, all of a sudden Satan reminds you of that thing. And it makes you undone. It makes you feel inadequate. It makes you feel as if there's nothing that you can actually do for God because you're tainted goods. Now, there's a difference between godly humility, which says, I'm inadequate. God, this is too big for me. You know, as St. Brennan is often uh, quoted as, you know, The sea is so big and my boat is so small. There's a difference between that and what's happening here. Where Moses is taking his own past and holding it against himself. But that's not actually limiting Moses. When Moses does this and when you and I do this, who is it actually trying to limit? God. It's not you saying, I'm limited. It's actually saying, God, you're limited. You're limiting, and Moses is limiting, and I am limiting God's power and his ability to forgive and restore. That's what Moses is saying here. I don't think that you have the ability to heal me and to use me in the way that you're saying you will. It's important to know our own limitations, but what is actually being limited here is not Moses, but God. And often our inadequacy is not the result of a godly humility, but our trying to limit God. So that's how Moses feels his own inadequacy. But then he says, look, I'm ineffective. In verse one, as I said before, he says, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. Uh, And in verse 10 again, but Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And so he says he says that he will be uh, ineffective. Uh, And before even that, He acknowledges his own ignorance in saying, what shall I say? So let's move on to ignorance. He feels inadequate, but now we know that he also feels ignorant. God gives Moses revelation and instruction. We see this in chapter 3 as well as chapter 4. Verse 16, we'll pick it up there. Uh, Talking about Aaron, he shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Now, of course, back in chapter three, he says the same thing. He's talking about God's plans 
for his people and his future plans for his people as to how they will walk with them. And he goes on in verse 19 on to say, this is my future plan for God's people. Now, when Moses says, I'm ignorant, when Moses says, I'm ignorant, God doesn't meet Moses's complaint by saying, it doesn't matter. Right? He doesn't say it doesn't matter. Don't worry about that. That's not what God says. But what does God say? Chapter 4, verse 15. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. God says, I will instruct you. I will instruct you. The answer to Moses' ignorance is God's instruction. The answer to Moses' inadequacy is God's sufficiency. But his ignorance is met with God's instruction. And God sets about teaching Moses. All these years, God has been instructing and teaching him. That's the answer to Moses' ignorance. He learns from God. God instructs him directly by his word. And God deals with our need to learn in the same way. God deals with our ignorance by revelation and instruction. He reveals himself through Jesus Christ by his word, and he delights to be our teacher and to instruct us in his ways. That is what the Bible is for. This is why God has given us his word. This is how men and women become effective for God when they are ready to submit, submit themselves to instruction. And we need to learn this for ourselves. We are often far too ready to send others out unprepared and uninstructed. The way God has directed is that he puts his children under a course of solid instruction and we become effective servants in that way. If you were to flip to the book of Acts, you don't need to do that right now. But early on in the book of Acts, this was the pattern of the early church. When Luke tells us in Acts uh, chapter 4, where he says that they were given over to what? What were they sharing with one another? Right? The, the breaking of the bread... Dedicated themselves to the prayers, but also to what? To the teaching of the apostles, right? That's, that's what they had given themselves over to. And in the same way, this is the same pattern in Exodus. How is our ignorance met when we feel like we don't know? By God's word, right? That, that's how we're instructed. That's how we are trained up. And in the same way, that's what's happening here with, with Moses. Moses becomes an effective servant of God by instruction. And, and that's a really uh, important thing. Um, you know, I, I remember when we um, first uh, put Bibles in the pews here, 
Uh, we had a few in the pews, but uh, we had somebody come forward and say, hey, I'd like us to put more Bibles in the pews. The ones that we have are getting a little bit old and they're dated. Can we please put new Bibles in there? Here's the check. And we put them in there. And, um, and I had some people say to me, well, I don't know why we put Bibles in the pews. Nobody's going to use them. And then when we took them out, somebody, it's funny, we, y'all are all trained really well now because when we took them out, somebody said, and now we don't even have Bibles in the pews. What's the church coming to? And I said, you know, you, you, you could carry your Bible to church. Uh, you, you could do that. And one person said, but that's what Baptists do. That's, that's what Baptists do. And I, and I said, no, I think that that's what, what Christians do. So um, if, if we're ignorant... Uh, that uh, comes by the fact that we're, we're not dwelling in God's, God's word. And Moses didn't get it right out of the gate, right? He's, he's having this conversation with God. So there are things that you're going to read in God's word and you're going to say, golly, this is hard. I don't understand it. I don't know what's going on. But the thing about it is, is that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you come to God's word, the Holy Spirit is going to lead you into truth. God is actually going to speak to you by his word. Uh, This was often called the dangerous idea of the Reformation. Uh, Because at the time of the Reformation, uh, there was a thought that, no, the church needs to interpret the Bible for the people of God. Now, there are some things in there where the church is very helpful in saying this is how we've taught it for centuries and, or millennia, really. And, and therefore, we ought to hold fast to that because this is what God's word says. So if somebody comes along and says, you know, I've got a different take on what the church has taught for over 2000 years. You should probably just shut your ears off. And this is what is said multiple times in the scripture. If someone comes to you preaching another gospel, even if it's an angel from the Lord, Paul says, and I mean, Paul says in Galatians, don't listen to them. Let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. So the church has certainly a, a, a teaching role in, uh, in, in interpreting God's word. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that we actually trust that God speaks by his spirit through his word that God can actually speak to you as an individual. And we have a high trust in the Holy Spirit that he will lead you into all truth. And even when we're led astray, uh, the promptings of the Spirit, other brothers and sisters coming alongside and saying, you know, dear brother, dear sister, I, I don't, not only do I not think with that, that that's what it says, but I, that's not what it says. And now I can give you extreme examples of this where I've had people come to me and say, you know, uh, God is telling me uh, to leave my wife for a much younger woman. I actually had a man tell me that. And I said, you know, no one ever says I'm leaving my wife for a much, much older woman. Um, uh, or it, That's an extreme example, but I think that you understand where you can say, actually, I don't know where in the world you could have gotten that from from God's word. And certainly uh, one of the reasons why I think Christianity and its convictions over what the Bible says about various and sundry social issues today, even things like human sexuality, uh, the reason why there's such hot and button issues, because it turns out that the Bible speaks today. It's It's a contemporary document that the word of the Lord is the same yesterday, today and forever. And so if we're ignorant, that's because uh, we have avoided God's instruction. But finally, uh, uh, the problem, uh, the the third problem that Moses brings up is that of ineffectiveness. Now, this is uh, where 
any of us would say, I could never be of any real use to God. I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm in, uh, yes, I'm inadequate. Yes, I may be ignorant. Uh, but also, I, um, you know, that's for somebody else. And, and we've all done that, haven't we? You know, I'm not a preacher, but, or I'm not, uh, you know, I, we, uh, we even sing it. Uh, there's a balm in Gilead. I, I may not preach like Paul. You know, that, that's, that's the feeling of ineffectiveness, that, that God couldn't possibly use me as I am. And so how does God respond to this problem of ineffectiveness in Moses? Well, let's read verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hand? Moses said, a staff. And God said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become the blood, will become blood on the dry ground. So how does God respond to Moses' feeling of ineffectiveness? Well, he gives him signs. It's a very funny conversation what does God ask Moses? What do you have in your hand? It's asking the little boy, what do you got in that bag lunch? A couple fish, a couple loaves. And then what does God say for Moses to do? Cast it down in front of me. Lay that shepherd's rod, just a normal old shepherd's rod probably that Moses used to tend his father-in-law's flocks. And Moses takes it and places it before God. And when Moses takes it back up after it's been turned into a serpent and grabs it by the tail and it turns to a rod again, Moses has not just taken up any old shepherd's staff. He's now taken up with the authority of God's rod. Something very ordinary, something that any shepherd would have in his hand, now becomes the symbol of God's authority amongst his people. And so I think God would say to each and every single one of us, what do you have? What's that you have in your hand? Cast it before me and it will become a powerful thing when it's taken up again. I mean, this rod is the same rod that, that Moses uses to part the waters. It's the same rod that Moses uses to bring water out of the rock in the wilderness. It's the symbol of God's authority to God's people. And whatever your shepherd's rod, your shepherd's staff is, it's something that you and I would regard as insignificant and nothing. 
but laid at God's feet and taken up by his bidding can become the symbol of God's power in your life and in the life of his people. Now, I'm not talking about charms. I'm not talking about enchantments. I'm not saying, you know, go bury a St. Joseph statue upside down uh, in your front yard and God will help you sell your house. Um, I was once talking about a Ro- to a Roman Catholic priest, uh, if that was really real. And he said, yes, it's really real. And he said, don't you have traditions like that? And I said, well, growing up, if there was a wedding, we'd bury a bottle of bourbon um, in, in the ground. Uh, but that's not... Uh, it, that's superstitious as well. Uh, so I'm not talking about that. I, I'm actually talking about uh, that God may take something in your life that is ordinary and use it for the extraordinary. So the example that I often use is the woman in Beaufort, South Carolina, uh, who was a godly, dear, lovely woman. And she had all the excuses that Moses had. And she came to me one day and she said, I want to serve God, but I don't know what to do. I, I, I feel like I'm uh, inarticulate. I, I don't know as much about the Bible. I just, I'm in over my head and I don't know what to do. And I took right here out of Exodus 4, I, I asked her, well, what do you have? What do you do really well? And she said, well, I, I make really good lasagna. I said, okay. And I said, well, what I want you to do is anytime you know of somebody who's had a birth, who's had an illness, who's had a death, I want you to make your lasagna and I want you to take it to these people. Now, the remarkable thing about this is it became less and less about the lasagna as it did her confidence grew in the Lord Jesus Christ and her ignorance and ineffectiveness and inadequacy was overcome. And so more than just dropping off the lasagna, the people that I would talk to who were beneficiaries of her ministry would say, it was such a godly moment when she came in and she prayed for me or she shared a little bit of scripture with me and it made the lasagna even better, right? So the lasagna was the sign, right? That was the sign that pointed Uh, to the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Taste and see that he is good. So what's your lasagna? Cast it before the Lord, take it up, and it becomes God's authority for you. And that sounds ridiculous, but it's no less ridiculous than what we're dealing with here in Moses and the rod. The second sign that God gives Moses is the leprous hand. Now, when he says, put it into your cloak... Uh, what it actually means literally in the Hebrew is to put it into your bosom. And the King James translates it that way. Put it into your bosom. Now, what do you think that God is trying to show Moses in this? He thrusts it into his bosom and takes it out and it's leprous and he puts it back in and it's made clean again. He's trying to show Moses the defilement of his own heart. Where's he putting his hand? Over his heart. Moses, get in touch with yourself. Feel the beat of your heart. Know yourself. And if you really know your own heart, what does it look like? It's leprous. It's diseased with sin. But just when that ought to drive Moses to despair and for him to say, "Ah, I knew it. I knew it. God says, put it back in over your heart again. And it comes out clean. 
God is encouraging Moses to believe that there is cleansing and transforming power in God's grace. God is able to change Moses. God is able to save Moses. God is able to take his defilement and make it pure. In the same way that he does that through Jesus Christ with you and with me. That by his blood we're washed. Right? This is the great old hymn. There's power, there's power, there's wonder-working power in what? The blood of the Lamb. Would you be whiter, much whiter than snow? There's power in the blood, there's power in the blood. That's what Moses is being taught here, to throw himself upon God's mercy. On his own, his heart is leprous, but by the power of God and his grace, he makes Moses whole. The same he does for you and for me. And as I said before, this is the Exodus is the story of our redemption too. Are you already hearing things that remind you of Jesus, that point to Jesus? And then finally, the third sign is the Nile River. Now, what was the Nile for the people of Egypt? Life. Right? You can go back in any ancient Egyptian document, and it's all about the Nile. Why? Because Egypt is nothing without the Nile. It gives life to the land. It would be uninhabitable if the Nile were not there. And so God says to Moses, I want you to go and take that Nile water that represents the life of Israel, and I'm going to turn it into blood when it's cast on the ground. What God is saying here is I want you, Moses, to take their life-giving water and watch me turn it into death. So the very sign of life for Egypt would become the sign of death. God will take all the power of Egypt and bring it to nothing. That's the sign of the water turn to blood. Now, all of us struggle with these things that Moses struggles with, our own inadequacy, our own ignorance, our own effectiveness. But what God is trying to show us is that he can take the weakest, poorest, most inadequate child of his and make him into a man or woman of flaming fire for God. That's what he's saying. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, what about your sense of inadequacy, ignorance, and ineffectiveness? Those are not disqualifications to serving God. The one disqualification is unbelief. Not believing that God could actually use you and use me. And like us, Moses was learning to obey and to go out trusting God in the most practical and deepest sense for every need that he had. That's the dependence that God wants us to have upon him. Not just to need him for the big things, but to need him for everything. I mean, this is the idea that is being conveyed by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Not, Lord, give us a six-month stockpile. But, Lord, I'm going to rely on you every day just to eat. Now, when's the last time we prayed that and actually meant it? Uh, most of us have been blessed beyond belief where that's just not a need of ours. 
But that can lead us to a, a place of a feeling, you know, God, we only need you for the big things. But no, here with Moses, we learn that we need God for our everything. And are we ready to take our need in that way? Whatever you need, whatever I need, may it lead us to the Lord. And by his grace, he can make us exactly what he plans to make us. God doesn't scheme plans. He makes men and women. And we see here that, that God does this remarkable thing in answering all of the objections uh, that Moses has, which are no different than the objections that we have when God calls us and says, go and do this thing for me. Questions, comments, concerns? Now, I didn't get to the circumcision in, uh, in Exodus chapter 4, but Craig Ogard made a really good point about Zipporah, uh, which is, by the way, one of uh, Frank Limehouse's dog's names, uh, his wife. Um, um, and, and I'm just, because a lot of you will probably think I, I want to know uh, what this is. So there's the reunion of the elders of uh, Israel and uh, Aaron, Moses' uh, Moses's older brothers there. And uh, But look at verse 24. At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint um, um, and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' Moses's feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Anybody want to comment on that? Well, give me, Craig, give us the words that came to mind when you read this earlier in the week. Uh, death. Death. Intercede. Intercede. Blood. Blood. Life. life. Well, those are Jesus' words. Yeah. So you see, even in a moment like this, we, we see um, a foreshadowing of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I could get into all kinds of details with this. Uh, but in Exodus, all of a sudden, um, the rods just is not just the rod. The leprous hand's not just a leprous hand. Uh, the Nile is turning to blood is not just the Nile turning to, to blood. Uh, that, that God is trying to, to teach us something of himself in those things. Clark, were you going to say something? I just didn't know whether you wanted to be a counterpoint. Jesus turning water into wine. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus turning water into wine. Um, you know, we're going to see um, a sort of parallel uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, when uh, with with coming down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments at Sinai, um, you know here, uh, you know the uh, the rod in Numbers with the bronze serpent, which Jesus Himself says that that's me in John chapter three. Uh, so it, there, there's a lot going on. And and even though we might skip over this part and say, well, you know, it, okay, so there's. Um, uh, there's a little bit of a domestic uh, going on here in uh, these verses. Uh, there is um, there is a, a deeper a deeper meaning. And next week we'll get to um, uh, Moses entering back into Egypt in the midst of the slavery and the bricks without straw and things like that. And and the, we'll start in on the plagues probably as well. So all right, little flock, let's pray and then we'll get out of here. 
Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we come to you now. We confess our feelings of inadequacy, ignorance, and ineffectiveness. Uh, But Lord, you meet those head on. And Lord, we're left without excuse except for the inexcusable excuse of unbelief. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that you might use us and whatever it is that we have in our hands that we would cast before you and take it up uh, as a mantle of authority. We pray that we would be instructed uh, by diving into your word. And we pray that we would uh, have those lies that Satan tells us of our past failures lead us to a place of inadequacy, Lord, that uh, we would uh, only know your forgiveness and your healing and the hope that comes from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.